you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 37 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey guys, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you so much for my your prayers for me and my family and my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Please, please keep it up, guys. It was my honor to interview Dr. Michael Bennett, aka Dr. Future, host of the tremendously influential Future Quake radio show and author of both the Two Spires Report blog and the soon-to-be-published Holy War Chronicles, A Spiritual View of the War on Terror. This two-part interview with Dr. Future will give you a transparent view into the life of Dr. Future and will challenge you to hold nothing but Jesus above critique. Well, guys, I want to tell you all about a new podcast that I really love, and episode two is just now up of it. It's called The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker, and you can find it at faithfulpodcast.podbean.com or on iTunes at The Faithful Podcast. Guys, please check it out. It's such a great Great podcast. You're going to get so strengthened by it. And this latest episode features Stephanie interviewing Ashley Capsar, uh, someone who's house flooded in Harvey, um, seeing how God helped them stay faithful through all types of trials, how God has been faithful to them through adoption, all kinds of great, great stories. I want you to go check that out. Stephanie Baker's podcast, faithfulpodcast.podbean.com. Guys, if you are blessed by this episode of Reclaiming the Faith, please go check out my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith, and leave a positive review there. And uh, you can also find my book called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ on Amazon. And again, if it's been a blessing to you, please leave me a review and rating there. If you want to contact me, you can find me on my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, or you can email me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. Well, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network and also be partners with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about what's talked about here on Reclaiming the Faith or Omega Frequency or Justin Falls Fourth Watch Radio Network, you can send in questions to bdk at omegafrequency.com, and we will answer those questions on our monthly Q&A show, Ready With An Answer. Lastly, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. So please, please, Go invest that $5 and you will be tremendously rewarded for that. All right, guys, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get episode 37 rolling, my interview with Dr. Future. 
Hey guys, we are so blessed to have Dr. Michael Bennett, aka Dr. Future, with us today on Reclaiming the Faith. What a blessing. And he's got a PhD in engineering. He's been a consultant for military, governmental, and commercial organizations for over 20 years. He's an inventor. He produced and hosted the tremendously influential Future Quake radio program between 2005 and 2012. He's been a mentor to many Christian podcasters like myself. He's the author of the Two Spies Report blog and also the author of his forthcoming six volume, I believe, uh, book project, The Holy War Chronicles, A Spiritual View of the War on Terror. Dr. Future, Dr. Michael Bennett, Mike, gosh. Thank you so much for taking time to uh, have this chat today. Well, it's my privilege to be on a show that from someone who's much more on the ball than I am <laughs> and somebody who can serve as a role model to me, although I'll have to correct the heresy that you said. Oh, uh, it's only right the first the one. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the first few seconds, you got a heresy. Actually, I think I'm trying to finish my 15th volume 15th. of the Holy War Chronicles right now. So That's amazing. It's. I think I have surpassed the Unabomber and Screeds <laughs> in in his uh, in a little shack. You know, we have similar lifestyle. You know, both sort of shut-ins. Well, I guess he's behind bars now, but uh, <laughs> but a similar thing. I scroll on the walls and everything. You know, indecipherable like that. So yeah, I've I've had a lot to add on there. And of all those names you use, probably you could just use AKA. Uh, that you use. That's, yeah, that's probably the best to use for me. There you go. <laughs> I think you had that one in there. But anyway. Uh, greetings, listeners, and salutations, including everybody on Fourth Watch and all of your uh, core listenership there. And uh, it's a privilege for me to hang out with some cool people. And thank you so much. I mean, your show, Future Quake, I mean, that's where I got to introduce to folks like Judd Burton, Tom Horn, Dr. Michael Heiser, Chris Pinto, and so, so many others. It was so, so influential uh, in, in me starting to look at the scriptures more uh, simply and seriously and really challenge a lot of the presuppositions, um, filters, new, or sorry, old wineskins, I guess, that I approach the Bible and my faith with. And so thanks so much for all that hard work that you've done and you are doing. Well, I'm encouraged that somebody listened to that mixture of foolishness and good stuff on Future Quake in seven years as I was wandering through the forest. And basically it was a free forum of inquiry and a bunch of the stuff, you know, when you distill it out and sift it, a lot of it doesn't make through the truth sift and some of it does. Yeah. But that somehow somebody got through all that and found what was worthy in it and held on to it, that is just a major encouragement to me. It should be encouraging everybody else, including a lot of people out there who should probably do their own show or write books like you're doing, that it's okay to wander through the wilderness hmm. as long as you have in your mind a direction that you want to go yeah. and just let God direct you through it and uh hopefully he'll direct your your listeners along the way but we all got a journey why we might as well just take it together that's it figure these things out yeah man well um i'd like to begin by letting you share some of your background like your testimony a bit and sure. how and why you got into radio because i you know I, know I know a lot of the people in the fourth watch know who you are but um some of my listeners from from my neck of the woods may not so if you wouldn't mind okay yeah well uh it's a privilege to be with any uh, I'm disturbed anybody who might associate themselves with you about what that'll do to my reputation. So <laughs> I don't know, but I'll, I'll just assume that maybe God had some reason for us all to be together today. Um, I come from about as classic and evangelical background, American evangelical, as anyone could imagine. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky in a, a blue collar family. 
Okay, I was born in 1964, so my formative years were mostly 70s and early 80s. Um, and uh, my dad was a machinist for International Harvester, and uh, um, you know, it was a, it was a place where where really nobody went to college until you know my sister and myself uh, first did something like that, and it was sort of a new thing. So we're not. It's not a family like Ivy League kind of people, if you get the picture. <laughs> but a very loving and a very secure family. Uh, my dad was home every night. Um, the, the most important thing was that it wasn't even a question about them having us in the Lord's house uh, every week. And, uh, um, you know, that became the center of our life, you know, aside from our nuclear family. Uh, was, you know, five miles down on the outskirts of Louisville was a little church, Hill Baptist Church, I grew up in, and a uh, small church, probably ran about 150. If if we had, uh, you know, the big Easter Sunday, we might get to put chairs out on the end of the pew, you know, and yeah, get man. closer to 200, but that's that was pushing it. But um, I look back on it as a golden age. It wasn't, we, we didn't get, you know, into the hyper details of what you or I, some of your listeners might get into now and sure didn't have like a blue letter Bible or other references or things <laughs> we have to really dig into things. But our church, we had a full-time pastor who was just, uh, I remember when the pastor came in 69 and was there for about 15 years and we would vacation with him and his, his wife and my family would go um, out to the lake and stuff. And I can remember the pastor teaching me to trust him to jump off the boat dock. <laughs> and, you know, he'd be out there in the water, and it was pretty scary for a little guy like me just jumping out into a lake, you know. Yeah, uh, getting you ready swim. for baptism. Well, <laughs> yeah, not only that, but, yeah, even in a in a deeper sense he was because as I learned to trust him when mm. he told me it's going to be okay, it's going to be all right to do this, it also made me ready when he started having that conversation with me about committing my life to Jesus. Mm. And because he had that credibility that I knew he was going to catch me and that he wouldn't mislead me to something bad, yeah. and I put my I put my neck on the line when I jumped in that deep water that we never found bottom to, um, I learned to trust him when he told me it was time for me to take tangible action as a young person on the actions that, uh, you know, what I heard about faithfully in my church. Hmm. And, and I have to say, with, with just a few exceptions, my life has been in church where, by and large— the gospel was preached faithfully, and people really don't have any excuse for having turned away from it. It mm. was really a question of whether they listened. Yeah. Um, did they always emphasize all the things that I wish were emphasized? No, but there certainly wasn't really heresy in all but a few cases. Um, but it really was you know, an idyllic environment. I had good Christian friends. I had my buddies. We had a blast together, did a lot of creative stuff. Before I left college, I made my first feature-length movie, Nightmare on Neptune, with my buddies at church and wow. the guys that I co-opt with at General Electric as a, uh intern engineer. Um, but we had a great time, but, you know, I was not a party environment. Hmm. Nobody around my family drank. Uh, I'm not saying things wrong with that. You know, that's more Christians certainly do, better the Christians do than me. But I'm just saying it was that kind of cloistered environment that seems sort of hard to relate to. But we, you know, we, we didn't, it wasn't a party environment. Right. Although we always had a great time. We'd love to go to midnight movies and see weird, scary movies at midnight and then try to stay awake at choir practice or, you know, inquire the next morning at church. <laughs> and, uh, 
my brother got me into auto racing, so I've always had a big thing about auto racing. In fact, I did race stock cars for a while while I was in college, just just for some fun. It was totally out of my league, like just like radio. Wow. And uh, so I've had a, a diverse interest and background from yeah. from making movies and writing and used to write comic books, and then I. Uh, I made these movies, so it's always been half left brain, half right brain. But the money maker was in the math. Um, I had a, a teacher that finally turned me on to math in the eighth grade, and that was a fellow Robert Hyde, who was the most prolific guest on Future Quake, actually. Hmm. And he had a profound effect on me. In fact, all of my thinking. And um, so I got going in that direction and found some aptitude in it. I liked the certainty of mathematics and science. Right. And uh, as I was slot car racing, racing these little electric cars, my brother and I would tour around racing around the Midwest. Somebody told me that engineers actually worked on things like that and optimized the design and it got paid for it. <laughs> and all I ever knew was like I worked at the grocery store or, you know, things like that. So all I knew was blue collar work by, you know, your shoulder and somebody said you could do this and get paid. And they didn't tell me most of that kind of work was actually writing reports and going to meetings. But um, so anyway, I, I fell for that and uh, went into engineering school at the University of Louisville. And uh, five years later, got out with my master's in mechanical engineering and went to work to write Patterson Air Force Base. And uh, I was sort of the guru of fire and explosion protection technology real far out technology to stop explosions on airplanes and in fires. And then I started doing things on race cars. I designed uh, a system for funny car dragsters to keep them from blowing up when the engines explode and testing them. I worked in a wind tunnel where I would shoot up airplanes like F-22s and F-15s and blow them up and design mannequins to measure when the pilots got hit and just a lot of weird stuff like that. Really exotic fire protection, explosion protection stuff. And uh, um, then I started uh, after uh, some people asked me to do some consulting work like John Deere and then General Motors asked me to work on a program to develop fire extinguishing systems for passenger cars. Hmm. Uh, the Air Force, uh, since there was limited opportunities in the government for expansion what I was doing and they wanted me to stay there, uh, they allowed me and approved me to moonlight. And so I moonlighted after hours doing this kind of work and also it sort of provided me a backup because I was in the Reagan the Reagan downstream when downsizing was occurring. So my job was always threatened the entire time I was there hmm. for 16 years at Wright-Patterson. And uh, so I kept a foot in the commercial world. I developed my own technologies, one to put out fuel tanks, something called a fire panel, um, and got that in uh, on police cars to stop them from exploding when I got rear-ended on the side of the road and That's awesome. got to test it and rocket slid test. And then uh, uh, I have another I have a special dry chemical called Black Widow I developed to put out fires and I use that on the Humvees and vehicles in Iraq. Wow. And then and then um, I got it in NASCAR too, got NASCAR test, I got to see one fire off on TV there. And then uh, I have a system now that uses rocket motors that are bigger versions of what are in your car, airbag inflators to put out fires. And it works like a charm. Uh, it works to put out aircraft engine fires or inside the cargo bay or computer rooms, uh, even inside of tanks when, like, these round shape charge rounds goes in and blows up inside the tanks. It protects the people, safe for the environment. So yeah. uh, I even got my tree hugger credentials when I was there. I got a <laughs> stratospheric ozone protection award from the EPA. 
uh, while I was there and got to go on um, Scientific American on PBS and CNN and stuff like that where they were interested in some of the stuff I was doing because it was uh, uh, it affected global warming and ozone depletion. Uh, with the chemicals. So I got to work a lot with Russian scientists. I got to go to a Uh-oh. secret city over there. Oh, yeah, I got secret <laughs> pictures out. And they, uh, The first time I went there, there was a young person. They put a bag over my head and drove me in a truck. I was speaking at a conference right after the wall came down. Wow. And they took me into a secret city. It was known as Star City. And I got to see where uh, Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, I got to actually see his uniform and this underground museum they had. So just a lot of weird experiences, Australia and Sweden and stuff like that. I was actually in Rome doing work when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, which was sort of weird to be an American out there. Everybody was real paranoid about mm. stuff like that. So so there's a lot more I could tell you, but that's just that's a little sampling of – but that's the stuff that paid the bills. Yeah. Man, you're going to have to – put another volume in your, in your chronicles with a, you know, biography being that. Yeah. And I'm sure people would be on the edge of their seats, just like they are your listeners right now. They probably switched channels already. They're, they're probably listening to home shopping network right now, but, uh, I hope I didn't, but yeah, there's, you know, you'll say something sometime and that'll remind me of some weird incident I had and, and all that kind of work because I did. It was an adventuresome time, particularly even after I left the Air Force in 2003. I got my PhD from the University of Dayton. I went back after 10 years and did that on the side while I was working. Hmm. And I got I got that. And then uh, my Mrs. Future, as I call my wife, uh, she was ready to move south. Her her parents were in ill health in Alabama at the time. And I had met her at church actually in Ohio, at a Baptist church. Uh, and there, and so uh, we moved to exactly between our sets of family here in the uh, north side of Nashville, and uh, got involved in church here. And I had sold my patents to two companies and helped incubate them and get them into the industry. And I did some more consulting for General Dynamics and places, but quickly weaned myself off of that. And uh, I can talk about my radio thing if you're interested in that. And yeah, yeah, how'd you get into that? Well, you know. <clears throat> When I was a little kid, now you got to understand, I come from this pre-Cambrian, pre-history age, before the internet, which is maybe hard for a lot of your <laughs> listeners to understand what when dinosaurs ruled the earth before <laughs> that. But it really was a different world because hmm. in that world, right now, you know, you can pick up and run on your favorite search engine, and you hear about a song you like, and you are Wikipedia, and you can learn everything about it. Hmm. You can learn exactly where to go find it. You know where everything's for sale and available. And before that age was really a dark age. And I don't mean dark all bad. It's yeah. just an age of mystery, sort of like Conan, uh, the barbarian world. <laughs> this was like up until about the late 90s was a Conan age. Right. <laughs> and we all wandered through the forest in ignorance. And what happened is mostly what you knew about was what came and contacted you directly. Hmm. So you knew a lot about your neighborhood. You knew a lot about your friends. If you're one of those weirdos like me that looked at a newspaper. What's a newspaper? See, I know, well, I know. It's the thing you sit on the toilet and read. I got you. You, know? you have to have some periodical for that. Right. And so, but, you know, or while you're getting your oil change, you read. But the, uh, uh, you know, they had very little information in there. So mostly there was a lot of mystery about the world. Yeah. And if you if you found like back then that was the age of vinyl LPs, 
Hmm. All you knew about a group or a band that you had was what was in the liner notes. That's back. it, man. And that was a little bit of what your universe was. And when, when I wanted to go find what else they did, you went to the Holiday Inn when they had the record collector conventions, and you went through milk crates trying to find a miracle where you would find another album by this band or something you'd only <laughs> heard rumors of. But you really were. It was a very cloistered environment. Yeah. And so it was a very different environment of contact. I mean, you had basically three or four channels on TV. So everybody watched the same thing, the ABC movie of the week. And then the next day of school, you talked about, you know, particularly if it was one like Pray for the Wildcats, where you had Andy Griffith mm. fighting William Shatner on a hillside of motorcycles, you know. <laughs> That's what pockmarked your growing up age. Yeah. Well, um, but so in that, the little bit of mass media you had was your only window to the world. Hmm. And uh, I used to, I've always been a night owl. And so I would get up even as just a little kid and watch The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson because it was hip for its time. And I learned a lot about things and authors and writers and stuff that still it sprinkles into my discussions, you know, when I do shows and things like that. But it, it, it was a world outside my little small neighborhood. Hmm. And uh, we didn't have literary circles, I'll put it that way, when I was growing up. Right. And so one of the things that they had, there was a top 40 radio, played top 40 hits called Wacky Radio, still a little very famous. Mm. And at 2 a.m., they had something called the Wacky Talk Show. And I would just sneak a radio in in my bed and pull the covers up so mom and dad didn't hear. <laughs> and I would, I would listen with these little earphone thing, little, those little white ones, single ones you put in with a transistor, yeah. and listen at 2 a.m. They had call-ins, and they had the strangest people that I would never meet in my little environment of people like me uh, that would call in at 2 a.m. and talk about strange topics, and it was very tongue-in-cheek, mm. and I was captivated. So I didn't get much sleep during the week at school because I was listening to the wacky talk show. Yeah. When I was in college... I uh, found a, um, and I was a commuter, so I wasn't like one of these hip kids that lived on dorm or whatever. I was just just commuter, and I I heard a black gospel radio station in Louisville, and there was this man on there, older man. He was called the Man and Drive, come to you live from I sixty five, teaching <laughs> you how to survive and how to stay alive, and I was just captivated by listening to it, mm. and so I would just call in occasionally. And tell him I was listening. And as far as I know, I was the only Caucasian that ever had any contact with the show. So he invited me to come sit in on the show. Mm. And so I drove up there. And I think he was surprised I showed up. And he allowed me to read the ads for the funeral homes that were sponsoring or prayer requests. And I just had a blast. And he'd always tell people good advice, like stay out of the back of those police cruisers <laughs> and stay, say nope to dope. And, you know, yeah. Uh, but he and I really clicked and uh, I really enjoyed the experience, but it didn't last very long for reasons. I don't know why. Maybe I got busy was trying to get my master's done or something, but it was just a very brief period. And so that was my only touch with radio. Hmm. And then when I moved into Nashville and was just really focused on, trying to uh, just built a home, just getting that all sorted out, still traveling a ton on both coasts, blowing up airplanes and stuff like that for, you know, my, my work. Um, I saw an ad in the, in the Tennessean newspaper and, and the newspaper, we only got it for like a month before my wife said, you're too busy to read the newspaper. Don't subscribe. So for like one month, I got the newspaper and I happened to be looking 
uh, probably sitting on the toilet, and looked on the back page, and there was this little like half-inch ad for they were starting a community radio station and were looking for submissions for people who ever want to be on a radio. And I showed it to my wife because you know, I always have to ask my higher power for permission. <laughs> and uh, she's like, well, if you want to do it, I guess so. You know, you haven't really had a hobby lately, you know, because of being busy with work. And so on a lark, I submitted a little three-quarter page, probably the shortest thing I've ever written since then, mm. uh, concept, because uh, I always wanted to be a future, uh, uh, what do you call a futurian, a, uh, somebody who looks into the future, a like a future analyst, futurist, that's it, yeah, and I always just thought, and they had some people that, at the Air Force where I worked that did that, and I always thought that was the coolest job to see what was coming 20, 25 years later. Yeah. Really nothing in that emphasizing religion or spirituality or anything, just talking about that stuff. Hmm. But I always had that cool charm of religion. And I never heard anything. For six months, never heard a thing. And then I, so I thought, well, I need to close the door on that just out of a lark and find out why they didn't do it. So I, I contacted them and they said, uh, oh yeah, we saw yours and uh, we decided to pick it. And it just turns out we're going to finally get on the air here in a, in a couple of months. Are you ready to go on the air? Man, that's awesome. And I was just, my drop, my jaw dropped. Yeah. And I thought, now what do I do now? <laughs> and so I went down, and this is where the cultural experience really happened. The meeting for this is community radio, so it's all put on by people. And I, I was in a rural suburb of, you know, people who put drywall or remodeled homes and you know, we were all just about as uniform, you know, a, a very traditional Southern Baptist church here at the time. So that's my pretty myopic culture, uh, the, my comfort zone. Yeah. And I go down to a place, he said, well, we're meeting at the Nashville Peace and Justice Center downtown, which, first of all, downtown Nashville might as well be Pluto to me. <laughs> I mean, it's just culturally, these people don't look like me. Right. You know? Right. And I go in the Peace and Justice Center, and it was just looked like the people that you would expect at somewhere like that. <laughs> tons of dreadlocks, tons of people wearing beads and tie-dyed shirts, uh, various forms of dress. And yes, I did see some transgendered people. Sure. Uh, I got to meet Roxy Fox and Laura Beth there. And my wife went with me, who's from rural Alabama. Need I say more? <laughs> And so we went there around these people and, you know, felt like I was in a zoo. And really, we were the oddballs, not them. Hmm. And so I thought, my wife, at any second, is going to say, get me out of here. Hmm. And so we listened to them. And what, what you found out was this was a seat-of-the-pants operation. Everybody there was just trying to figure each other, like, what do we do? How do we get a tower? How do we get, you know, this was real radio, not interested in that stuff. So you, you had to... You know, there was really stuff you had to put together a place. Yeah. But everybody was just doing it together. And uh, it was a, it was really a man. And we found out the only lady who had any experience was a lady who had done some local radio, but it was her vision. Uh, of course, she would have been very different politically with me. I was pretty hardcore Fox News watching conservative at the time and was still for some time. This was pretty lefty kind of lady. And uh, but she had some idea about filing FCC stuff and you know the hoops you jump through, yeah. But still feeling their way through, and um, as as we saw, you know, a lot of this weirdness on parade. As I left, I thought, well, that's the end of it. And my wife 
surprisingly says, you know, that was really interesting. We ought to continue to pursue this. And I found out that the lady who was sort of heading it up had been trying for like 12 years to get this radio station off the ground. And so we were and, and tremendous work, just dedication. And we got in on the tail end right when they were a couple months. Finally, it had FCC approval, had a chance to actually get a place. And some podiatrist up on a, a mountaintop outside of town here allowed them to build a, like a 12 by 12 foot room on the side of his double wide trailer. That was the radio station. Man. And so we went out there and the next thing, my wife and her out there rubbing shoulders with these people, uh, putting vinyl siding. We, we put all the siding on it. Everything was made out of plywood on the inside, donated equipment. Um, but the real cultural interest was when the what they called the barn raising, which was the weekend they were going to try to get on the air. There's an outfit called Prometheus Radio that tries to promote low-power FM stations popping up that are actually people of the public speaking on the radio rather than professionals or corporations. Well, they they will bring in out-of-town people to come help you, volunteers, to help get this because it's very labor-intensive. It was freezing cold. It was a deluge. It was like Aleutian Islands weather there. These people came, you know, probably hitchhiked most of them their way or VW microbuses, and they filled in the swamp where it was, freezing cold snow, sleet coming down. They slept in tents. Gosh. And so my wife and I, we helped get food ready to, and basically they only want to get donated food. So we had to go to these really hip kind of places where they eat food that we didn't know anything about at the time, <laughs> like baba ganoush or hummus or things like that. Hey, that's good. And I found out a lot of these people were vegans or they were, they only ate raw stuff or whatever. But at the time, we were going to a very, very traditional Baptist church. We thought, hey, we're coming to the Baptist Vatican, moving to Nashville. We, we got to lay the land from Ohio, went to like a very good size, you know, like 800-member church, wonderful facilities, long legacy. And we found a group of people uh, taught very good things, wonderful choir. We like singing hymns and choir music was great. And these people were just couldn't get along with each other. And they'd been together for like five generations, and they threatened the staff. They would send anonymous letters threatening the staff. The deacons would have midnight staff meetings. Deacons were holding keg parties for the uh, youth. But on the outside, they had a veneer of this beautiful evangelical culture, this all shucks kind of thing that we would have loved until you sort of pull over the stump and see the termites. Hmm. But, but the big thing was the absolute dissension. And, and ugliness. Hmm. So now we're, we're involved with these, with these godless, you know, liberal leftist tree huggers, okay? Yeah. And they don't know us. They're absolute strangers. And they're, they're coming out there sleeping in tents in the sleet. And the four or five days we were under those extreme conditions, and they were there for nothing. They got nothing for it. I never heard one complaint. Hmm. I never heard one bad word from anybody the other or frustration, the antithesis of what I heard in my church. Hmm. And, and, and the penultimate thing was the point when we got ready to raise the 75-foot tower. And nobody had money, so there was no money to be able to get a, a crane to lift a tower to put it up. And so it was all manpower. So we had probably had 100, 150 people on eight different guy wires and some guy who had some experience that would tell us when to pull, when to give slack, to elevate this tower that someone had crawled up in a tall tree 
to to tie up at the top. I mean, they're risking their neck up there in a tree to help guide it up. And so I was on a line with somebody from Ecuador, somebody from Chicago and all these other places. And we all didn't know each other, but, but I I sort of had one of those, uh, epiphany moments Hmm. because as we're pulling on this wire and he's directing us to, to pull, and then sometimes you have to give slack to let the other people pull. And then meanwhile, as he sees what's going on, that tire is slowly coming up, which none of us individually could have even dreamed of doing. And I thought, wait a minute, isn't this how the kingdom of heaven is supposed to work? <laughs> is, isn't a healthy church supposed to work this way? Yeah. Because we were going to a church that, that looked idyllic on the outside and was just totally dysfunctional. Meanwhile, you had a bunch of these people who had nothing else in common other than caring about their fellow man, and they had a, some kind of dream vision. And they were there under horrible conditions, and the the whole action of pulling and giving slack to others while someone's directing the whole operation, that became the model of what I wanted to see the kingdom of heaven be. Mm. And yes, they got the, the tower up. And by the end of that day, uh, that woman's dream of over 12 years, possibly 20, came true when they flipped the switch and they were on the air. Yeah. And within 48 hours later, I had my baptism by fire, and it was the first <laughs> Future Quake show, April 5th, 2005. Yeah. And uh, I, I was involved with the strangest people uh, at the station and the guests, and I was exposed way out of my comfort zone, and I found out that I can learn vir- virtues from the strangest of people hmm. and I can take it and run it through my Jesus filter and my gospel filter and get something useful out of it. Sure. And in turn, if I'm not too judgmental and prissy, I can actually maybe sometimes <laughs> even do something for them. Right. And so, yeah, that was a transformational experience. But you know what happened was that Future Quake got to be one of the most famous shows on, uh, on the radio station. We were on every Tuesday night for for two two hours actually, yeah. but the um, uh, you know we had some spiritual topics and the Dr. Michael Heisers and other people like that. Uh, I had some other stuff that probably in hindsight, like I had the Minutemen that did the border patrols on, hmm. and that rubbed some people the wrong way there. And now I understand why it did, but I didn't know then. Hmm. And and a few that I had uh, Arpaio, Joe Arpaio on Future Quick. Yeah. And, you know, I would probably have some different things to say to him now than I would have then. Hmm. But I was, I was green. I was, I was, uh, like 42, 43 years old and, uh, I was still, uh, drinking milk, hmm. you know, been in church my whole life and really drinking milk. Yeah. And, uh, so, but as it got a little bit more religious and spiritual, um, it sort of rubbed the program director the wrong way, and I could see the handwriting on the wall, and I thought that was the end of Future Quake after three years. Mm. And it, it had its course. It was exciting. One of the first guests I had was um, uh, the guy that wrote Future Shock, Alvin Toffler, yeah. who's an international figure, and I was shocked he came on my show the first few weeks. So I just had this wonderful experience. Uh, uh, Andrew DiPolitano came on the show. you know. Nice. Um, but as as... We parted company. I thought that was the end. It was sort of like how I first got on the radio. On a lark, I sent out some requests to some places locally to see if they'd be interested in having a show. I had no money. I had no way to pay airtime. I had no sponsors. So that basically meant like a nil chance of being on the radio. And uh, I even checked out some of the radio, the networks that do mostly conservative Christian radio. And you can imagine how they treated me. Um hmm. 
And I was, you know, trying to promote the stuff they were promoting and like Salem Communications and some of these other ones and just got door slams. Hmm. And um, so I, I flowed some trial balloons to some stations, didn't hear a thing. And one of them was a community station. It was an AM station, but they reached multiple states uh, around, uh, you know, the Mid-South. But it was owned by Trevecca University, which is a Nazarene university. But it's it was not really a university station run by university. It was uh, it was really run for community radio. But it but it it ran all syndicated stuff. It was all Dr. Dobson, Janet Parshall, this kind of stuff. Hmm. And so they didn't have a studio because it was all syndicated programming. The big guys. Yeah. And so um, I called them again just to get my dear John official, and I hadn't heard from him for two months. And asked them, you know, if they'd officially decided not to do it. And they said, well, actually, uh, we sort of liked it. We listened to your show and liked it. And uh, would you like to be on at 10 a.m. or uh, 4 p.m.? <laughs> wow. And I, th- I said, well, I don't have any money. I can't pay for it. And they said, that's okay. We won't charge you. And so I got a 4 o'clock drive time. Nice. A uh, half hour every day. Only thing I had to do is I had to produce the show in my in my basically my bedroom. <laughs> Uh, interview people on Skype, and then edit it, edit it myself and upload it to their server, and the next thing you hear it on the radio. <laughs> Had listeners all through, you know, mid-Kentucky, Alabama, all over Tennessee, and uh, it was all just done in the bedroom. But, you know, Andrew Napolitano, Jesse Ventura, um, uh, who else? Uh, World Net Daily guy had him on, you know, Joseph Farah. Of course, Alex Jones was on for an episode, <laughs> and uh, you know other the the usual lineup of suspects that your listeners would know about. Sure, uh, on the show, but it was amazing when you you know if people wrote a book, and their and their publicist didn't know who you are. If you had a AM or FM on the end of your name, they would give you a try. Yeah, and before they knew that you were you know totally implausible or charlatan. <laughs> And so I made them have to find that out personally. Right. And so that had an opportunity. It's just the boldness. It's the boldness to go ask somebody. Yeah. It's amazing if you just have the guts to go ask. You know, Jesus said it. He says, you have not because you ask not. Hmm. And so I started learning that experience. And uh, it was very busy because I was a one-man show, and I have no production knowledge at all. And so they aren't real pretty. But – Sure, got to talk about a lot of interesting things and met a lot of people. And a lot of these people that listen locally started coming to my church, not the church that I was just telling you about. Um, if I, I'm, I'm giving you much more detail than you probably wanted, but no, it's great, man. You're, you're getting inside my head here. Anyway, <laughs> we tried for forever. Mrs. Future and I tried to work and be agents of reconciliation yeah. between the staff and the church where we were. Other people who were fairly new there who weren't part of the five generations that normally went there also try to do that role. And we found a people who were totally unwilling to love their neighbor. (laughs) And no matter what the examples, we had all sorts of prayer meetings and things like that. You know, we'd have face-to-face things where we would try to facilitate discussion. And it was totally, you know, just nowhere. And so my wife did something we've never done in our entire life, uh, having left a church other than by moving away. That's the first because we believe your church family is your family. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, you know, up to that point, it felt like a divorce if you ever had to leave, you yeah. know, and you, something you don't do. Right. And so what we did was we focused on finding good, healthy jobs for the members of the staff. Oh, that's great. Uh, we got the youth minister. We found out he was more athletic, 
kind of guy that would fit great as a chaplain, military chaplain. So we got him involved in the Air Force. And he went through it and is still a chaplain today. Hmm. We found other churches for the staff people, got them on their way. And our last time there was to help vote in a severage package for them. And then we shook the dust off our feet. Hmm. And we went to First Baptist Nashville, which, as you know, would be a flagship of the Southern Baptist Convention. We like piano and organ music. You couldn't beat it there. Wonderful choir, wonderful sure. music. A classic Sunday school. The guy who taught our class uh, actually reviewed all the books for Lifeway because <laughs> Lifeway headquarters. Most of the Lifeway management went to that church sure. and taught. He reviewed them all for heresy to make sure that they weren't politically incorrect or <laughs> theologically. So, I mean, what better to have for a Sunday school teacher? Yeah. Uh, I met the guy there who became my first co-host on Future Quake, Emmett. Okay. who I still go to church with today in my uh, other church. Well, anyway, we started working in the thing to help people uh, get clothes, homeless people, so they could get a job. Clothes closet. Yeah. And it was a wonderful ministry. An old couple ran it at the church. Now, this is a massive church, okay? Yeah. This church actually spent a million dollars at that time to renovate a doorway. <laughs> and the money was not an issue. A million dollars to do it. Well, this closed closet was about five feet inside the church door. Now, they're in the middle of downtown Nashville, so there's plenty of homeless people. I mean, an inner-city church, that's really their calling. It should be to help. And so all this did was we would escort one homeless person at a time a few feet inside the door. We had clothes there, and most of those clothes were bought by this older couple at Goodwill. We'd get them outfitted something really presentable because they'd have an interview set up to make sure they got a job. And, and that usually was successful. They'd get a yeah. job, get on their feet, right. success. One person at a time going, well, the corporate board there at the church decided that uh, it they wanted to cater to the yuppies that were moving in the condos downtown. Yeah. And they really wanted to go for them. Of course, you know, they got money. And exactly. they thought that it would really be a turnoff for those yuppies to see a homeless person walk into the church. Yeah. And so they wanted to put a stop to that ministry. Well, that whole ministry in five years, they had contributed the church a total of $500 to that over five years, you know, having spent a million dollars on the doorway. And so they wanted to put a stop to it. And I, you know, I I was just helping this other couple. I wasn't one running, but I told them, I said, you know, you're worried that you're going to lose yuppies because of seeing a homeless person there. I said, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to get these yuppies because you don't have them here. Mm. These yuppies are actually more substance than what a lot of your people are at this church. Mm. And they want to see people really helping the downtrodden like Jesus taught about and actually doing something real rather than just playing church and listening to pretty music. They want to see this. And when they don't see it, they're going to turn right back around and go back to Habitat for Humanity or any of these other kind of secular service groups because they're not seeing that kind of real stuff at your church. Yeah. So sadly— the only time, second time ever, and this was a year after we left the other church, my wife and I said, look, well, they also started teaching um, special services about people who were different Christians, like they had on Sunday nights, and they had one on snake handlers. <laughs> uh, and they said, you know, these people are different up in Appalachia and stuff. Yeah. These people are different than us, but they profess Jesus, and we need to be patient with people, you know, or maybe Jehovah's Witness or things like that. Be patient with all these people. You know, recognize God works in mysterious ways. Well, the next week they had something on the end times. 
and premillennialism and dispensationalism. And this very sweet, kind pastor starts calling and saying these people are nuts, that all it was was some fever rantings of some woman that invented all this stuff about a literal return of Christ, and that these people were crazy. And all of these people there at Lifeway, these managers, I could hear them in the hallway during the break saying, well, you know, I don't know anything about the second coming or anything, but if the pastor says this is crazy, then that must be what it is. Right. They were they totally had no meat or any understanding out of scripture. This is at a flagship Southern Baptist church. Yeah. With senior leadership. And as we're sitting there and they're making all these claims about Jesus never really said anything about his return or anything literal or whatever. Before I knew it in this big mega church, I say out loud, that's not true. Hmm. Right in front of my wife. Yeah. And so uh raise some eyebrows. Well, I was all worked up about it. And uh because you start really questioning the second coming of the Lord, I mean, you can get fixated on a topic, and believe me, I've had to go through that too. Yeah. But you don't do that. What else do you question in Scripture? And right. so my wife says, go talk to your Sunday school teacher. You know, he's he's the head of doctrine for Lifeway. See what he says. So I contact him, and he says, yeah, you're right. That's not what we've been traditionally taught. But he didn't want to do anything about it. Hmm. I said, well, I don't know. He says, well, won't you just go talk to the pastor? Go send him a message. So in true Dr. Future fashion, my little brief message was about a 14-page <laughs> document where I said, here are the scriptural reasons why I believe, yes, Jesus thought he was really coming back, and it is a traditional doctrine of the church yeah. going back to the early days. Well, his response was, you didn't write this. You plagiarized this because you're a layperson. A layperson couldn't have come up with anything like this. Of course. And when I pressed him further about what he believed. He says, well, I guess I can't dispute what you say, but that's not what I was taught in seminary. Yeah. And I got nowhere. I got nowhere. And, and you know, uh, Southern Baptist Seminary uh, gave us our part-time music and youth ministers at my church growing up, my little small church. Yeah. And a lot of them were real good. A lot of them were great people. They're, they're leaders today. Yeah. But a few of them, like one of my member, got after me in youth group because I believed that there was a hell. And he said, well, I, you just want people to go to hell because you believe in a hell. Now, it turns out I'm much more nuanced in how I understand how that works out today. But the fact that I had a concept of what Jesus talked about was heresy. So, you know, I've been down that road. Yeah. I also witnessed when they did the purge, the, the purge in the Southern Baptist in the 70s and 80s, you know. Okay. And, uh, you know, at that time I was like, oh, go get them. Get rid of these heretics, you know. Hmm. At least to some extent. But I started seeing real people that I really liked and respected that were victimized by that. Yeah. And I realized, well, there's more to this than my simplistic view. And I, and I, I grew up at a time when, uh, uh, well, the religious right appeared. Okay. Growing up in the 70s, the 70s was a very, very permissive era. We, we tend to think, well, history only goes in one direction. Things go to pot more and more and more and more and more uh, decadence as we go. Well, mostly that's true. But there are periods that are you have pushback. The pendulum pushes back, right. like the Victorian age and things like that. You know, you had Renaissance and you had all of some of this decadence that came with that. And then the Victorians pushed back. Hmm. back. Well, in the, in the 70s, you had real permissiveness on even on TV, but also on like movies. Like you could drive down a regular street and the drive-ins were still everywhere. 
they they ran X-rated movies on drive-ins right where you could see from the street. Good lord! In the 1970s, you know, and mainstream like Siskel and Ebert on you know reviewing movies would would review famous X-rated movies on their show, oh my and would talk about how what they felt during it and stuff. And now you think, wow, that's that's pretty edgy for back then. Right. But there really was push envelope, and so I guess there was an inevitable pushback. Yeah. And so my, my mom and dad, they were not political people. We weren't we tend to vote Republican, but it wasn't like a big thing in our discussion to follow play. There just was there was no Rush Limbaugh. There was not real real Republican talk or re- political talk on the radio even very much. Yeah. It back then. Uh different world. But anyway, uh they watched Jerry Falwell on T V on Sunday night and he was you know, he was certainly much more polished than your average small church preacher. Hmm. I mean, he had, he had a style behind the pulpit, but he really started preaching a return back to traditional values and traditional, and again, couldn't research anything about him than what you saw on that few minutes on TV every week. Yeah. And so he started something called the Moral Majority, and what he was really tapping into was this, what Nixon called the Silent Majority, hmm. you know, grassroots people who were decent living people, that they didn't have any say in the culture or Hollywood or whatever. So he started pushing back and knew how to, you know, raise money and get people engaged. And so I'm, I'm sure my parents joined or did something because they got a Jerry Falwell Bible and everything else. Right. And so that was the real birth of the conspicuous religious right. Recently, I've done some research on how all that got started. I thought it was started because of Roe v. Wade and the abortion issue. Right. And that was what, and, and I'm a pro-life person. Of course, you know that's probably one of the more conservative things about me, as I, other than scriptures, and is I, I, I actually believe it's a liber, should be a liberal issue too. I mean, who's more vulnerable than yeah. the pre-born? Right. I, I believe all vulnerable people, including people my fellow Christians don't like, right. should be protected. But the unborn would be one of them. And um, I thought that was the catalyst for the religious right to get found, and then things took off in the culture war. Well, I found out not all that long ago that uh, Richard Viguri, I don't know how you pronounce his name right, but he was one of the guys who was the centerpiece founding a religious roundtable, and he got Pat Robertson and uh, Falwell and these other guys together, hmm. uh, creating his own writings that it was not that. What really triggered it was the um, uh, um, there was an amendment that uh, Carter had approved that, that religious schools, Christian schools, religious schools that discriminated by race – were not allowed to get government money, that you couldn't get government money if you discriminated. And Bob Jones was the most conspicuous because Bob Jones University, definitely black people were not allowed to go to that school. Yeah. And this was up through, this was like late 70s, okay? They were just not allowed. Yeah. And, but they weren't alone. And so when this got into force and they were told, look, you're either going to have to let black people come to your school or you go to Christian school or you're going to have to withdraw government money. And they went and met on it and they decided it would be better to get rid of all government money than to let a black person set foot on our campus. Mm. Well, they were supported by Jerry Falwell, who his school was set up to be whites only. His original school, Liberty, was for white students to go to. Right. And other ones, and that was the start. They were afraid that they were going to clamp down and integrate the Christian universities hmm. around the country. And that's what started what we know as a religious right. The other thing I was shocked to find out was that because I was really young when this happened, when Roe v. Wade happened, you would have pictured 
Christians filling the streets uh, condemning this. Well, it turned out the only Christians really who were against it back then were the Catholics, mm. by and large, by and large. I went back and found resolutions from the Southern Baptist Convention from that era basically saying that uh, Roe v. Wade was okay and that right. it was a good decision. Right. And, in fact, I hear people like Criswell, W.A. Criswell, who comes from your neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah. He didn't even believe that a uh, baby was a human being until some lengthy time outside the womb. Was he? He was out of Dallas, right? I think it was Dallas, but I mean, he's he's on the no, Mount no, no. Rushmore, yeah, Texas, Southern Baptist. You yeah. know, yep. Uh, he's up there, and so we have a reinvention of a world. And I'm not saying they were right. All I'm just saying is the world was different mm. than what we've been repackaged and yeah. what we've been raised under. Yeah. And so all these dynamics have made who I am. I worked. I wasn't in the military, but I worked for the military as a scientist for 16 years. Yeah. I was around all military people, gung-ho, couldn't wait for the next war. We got some good action, you know, good things going on. I was there on 911, and we were the next target after the Pentagon was right, Patterson. We were the next biggest military wow. place. Yeah. And uh, so all that was a stew going on affecting me. But when my wife and I finally said we'd had enough between the weird teachings and the total uncare about the downtrodden at the inner city church. We didn't know where we'd go. And we looked for maybe say a Christian missionary Alliance church, which tended to be a little bit more intelligent, but good grounded, you know, denomination or something like that. We couldn't find a good Baptist church here in Nashville, believe it or not, that, that met our standards. And I had been reading on Bible prophecy boards on the internet about, um, when people would talk about Bible prophecy, which is something I was really into at the time, and the people who I thought that had the most enlightened views and really had a good handle on the Bible were people that were part of something called Calvary Chapels. Yeah, right. That didn't know what they were, had no idea. I thought I knew everything about church stuff because that was a big part of my life, Yeah, just reading about it, but I was totally unaware. That's Chuck Smith, right? Chuck Smith, yeah. right. And uh, Chuck Missler, you know, a lot of people know him. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, boy, they were really into Bible prophecy, and they were seemed to be pretty grounded. And so, turned out, just right down the road from our house was was a rare as a hen's tooth in the Bible Belt, Calvary Chapel, <laughs> little small one. Yeah. I always thought it was probably some of these weird non-denominational church, you know, and probably handled snakes or something. When I looked out there because I didn't know who they were. Yeah. And so I saw this, and I told my wife, I said, you know. We don't know what else to do. Let me go down there and check them out. And I had a chip on my shoulder a mile wide because I was going to really sift them through doctrinally. And this was right in the middle of my future quake days. Yeah. And I was, I was going to run them through the mill and uh, make sure I didn't make this mistake again. And I went in there, met with the pastors. They were just loving, patient, treated me like a human being, let me vent. Let me scrub. Their statement of faith was right there on their websites. I knew exactly what they believed and tried as hard as I could. I couldn't find anything I disagreed with. Um, And listened to the sermons. I actually found out they were teaching and not yelling. And, you know, their big thing in Calvary Chapel is they go verse by verse through Scripture. So you don't get a lot of, you know, bizarre pet stuff. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can really speak out is my congregation. I can't really speak for the ones in Southern California or the big ones. Because I've never been there. I've yeah. only been to mine. Right. So that's all I know is my local experience. But what I know was it has been a venue of healing. Mm. And um, when I went to the sanctuary, it was the first time I've actually had a spiritual experience 
where I felt a warmth and I felt like I belonged, even though they didn't have church pews, hmm. which was anathema to me. There was no church pew. There was no choir loft. Yeah, no organ, there was a right? dr- There was a drum set up front, which right. I knew was of the devil, <laughs> but it was there anyway. You might as well just painted horns up there in a pentagram. Right. And uh, if you read any chick tracks, you would know that. But uh, anyway, I went there and I said, you know, I asked my wife, I said, let's just give it a try. I like to really hear what he has to say. We went there on Easter Sunday. The music was just like really, really loud. It was really extreme. We found out later that it was like they really amped it up for Easter, which I guess if there's ever a time to celebrate, that's the time. Sure. But my wife was a little catatonic over it. And uh, so I thought that was the end of it. And we went and prayed about it that week. And she decided that even though we had a little culture shock musically, heck, the, the whole future quake radio free national experience was shaking our world anyway yeah i mean we were going through maids of up, upheaval hmm. so we said let's just give this a try you know teaching is more important than cultural differences in music yeah and that was 12 and a half years ago wow and now you know now i'm on the board of the church and best friends with the pastor and I feel some sense of ownership to the extent that anybody should. I mean, it's the Lord's church, but you know what I mean? A yeah. sense of responsibility. Yeah. Uh, I'm grateful for my church. They put up with my crazy rantings, including on Wednesday night. <laughs> They've been foolhardy enough to let me fill in when everybody's gone on mission trips to teach. Um, and so, you know, they have low standards because they've allowed <laughs> a crazy guy like me to do it. But it really is my, it's my family because we're from somewhere else. Uh, about two weeks after we started going, nobody really knew us. And my my wife's uh, dad had a severe medical problem in the hospital, and uh, her mom was not very well. So my wife went to go stay with her in Alabama, and a a huge van shows up, and all the people from this church, from another state, come in from this church to just sit with my wife and her mom. Yeah. And I I tell you, you won't see that in many churches Hmm. anymore. Uh, including mega churches, yeah. where they'll drive out of state to go with somebody who's, we were just visitors. We didn't even meet the Baptist three-week criteria, you know, where you have to go three weeks, you know, yeah. for your official. Right. I don't know where that is in the Bible, but somehow three weeks makes you official there. And then, you, of course, you have to go up and fill out the yellow card on the front pew. Second That's Hezekiah. The other. In Second Hezekiah, That's whatever right. the Baptist yeah, yeah. faith and message or something. But right. anyway, um so we weren't even by that criteria. We were just strangers. And they showed up, and since then they have driven multiple times out of state when one of our family members had a funeral or in Kentucky when my father died last year. Hmm. This is the kind of stuff that you see as body work, and I mean, you know, Christian body. Yeah. And I've told them that these people are so close that they're about a half step from being a cult because they hang out together all the time. They do things together all the time. And, and so I have, I just want to leave listenership since I criticize on my blog and show mm. the, the quote, the church and yeah. the evangelical church all the time. I believe in the local church. Yeah. I believe every, I believe every person as a Christian should look until they can find a place they can at least tolerate. And they may not like all the weird topics that we may talk about online or all the extreme stuff we do. But if it's somebody that you can work shoulder to shoulder with, pick up the plow and do the humbling work of just helping people in your community, helping people to go visit that are sick or the nursing home. This all the stuff that needs to be people who need food brought to them while they're sick. That's stuff we, you can't do that all online. Hmm. 
And you need to have a local body. It's humbling for you. You can listen to other people, fellowship, learn from them, um, develop context. And and there's there's a lot of commitment that goes with it too. I mean, we go to a lot of times we don't feel like going to a home group. We're we're tired. We just don't feel like it. Or somebody needs something and it's just a drag because we're busy, whatever. So there's always a price to pay when you're in a family. But I just want people to know I believe in the local church. Uh, I be- just like I believe in Jesus yeah. and the gospel and the resurrection. And no matter what they hear me criticize or whatever, that's the one thing that I want them to know is that I stand in the testimony of Jesus Christ and our risen Lord and in the gospel, and we'll debate everything else. But right now it's just Jesus in my bucket and nothing else. And everything else has to be critiqued against that. When the big crop comes, what you gonna do? You can build bigger barns like your heart tells you to. You'll amaze the neighbors, make them go ooh and hard. You're in the big time now. Building bigger barns, yeah. But there's gonna come a Peace. 